We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Eric Raymer. Today, we welcome the return of Susan Gatehouse, who reports on a proposal to change implementation dates for ICD-10. Healthcare consultant and CDI expert Colleen Deegan returns with Part 2 of her exclusive series on outpatient CDI. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has the latest coding news and the Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. We're all here, ready to go. And no one's more ready than the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor and the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 454th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by the ICD-10 Bookstore. And good morning, Erica. And good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. <laughs> hey, no doubt about it. It's got to be March Madness because all healthcare news these days seems to be about coding. I mean, for the last two weeks, we've been reporting on the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. That's about coding, right? That's right. Spring and the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, my favorite times of year. Indeed, right. And last week, you did report on a new COVID-19 code that was discussed at that meeting, and that's coding, right? That's right, U09.9, post-COVID-19 condition. <laughs> and now Susan Gatehouse is here this morning. She's going to report on proposed ICD-10 implementation dates. That's got to be about coding, right? <laughs> you are really into coding today. Yes, and my friend Colleen Deegan is here today to continue with part two of her three-part series on outpatient CDI. And that's about coding, right? And Lori Johnson has a talk on Tuesday coding report, right? <laughs> yes, and that is so. That is so. And what are you going to be reporting today during your segment? I'm going to be addressing the OIG's most recent report on coding that has to do with MCCs. <laughs> Okay, very good. Looking forward to your report, as always. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. Medicare has just increased the Medicare payment amount for administering the COVID-19 vaccine. The concept was that the higher rate would incentivize providers to give more shots and support providers and provider sites. The supply of vaccine is growing, and soon the bottleneck will not be the amount of vaccine, but the number of locations and vaccine sites. Effective for COVID vaccines administered on or after March 15th of 2021, the national average payment rate for physicians, hospitals, pharmacies, and other immunizers will be $40 to administer each dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. This represents an increase from the approximately $28 to $40 for the administration of single-dose vaccines and an increase from the approximately $45 to $80 for the administration of the COVID-19 vaccines requiring two doses. The exact amount for the administration of each dose of vaccine will depend on the type of entity that furnishes the service and will be geographically adjusted based on where the service is furnished. CMS stated that the updates resulted from new information about the cost for administering the vaccine. It also seems to be driven by the impact of variants and the COVID-19 of the COVID-19 vaccine virus and concerns about getting the economy back on track and children back into school. 
CMS is also updating toolkits for providers, states, and insurance in conjunction with the increased rate for giving the vaccine. Let's all do what we can by promoting vaccination with our friends, families, and coworkers. Tell people when you get vaccinated. Post it on social media. Let's be our brothers and our sister's keeper. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's March 23rd. Today, the death toll from the deadly coronavirus is nearly 543,000. You're listening to Talk Ten Tuesday. Stand by. Increases in CMS risk adjustment data validation and OIG audits means you'll need to double down on your HCC coding and clinical documentation and understanding as you expect greater scrutiny on claim submissions. The best place to increase your understanding of HCC coding is in an upcoming webcast by Glorianne Bryant. During part two of this two-part series, Glorianne drills down into HCC coding details, documentation, specificity, and ICD-10-CM code selection. She uses case examples and scenarios to demonstrate compliance and improve accuracy. Register to attend this important webcast, Learning Made Easy for Risk Adjustment and HCCs, Part 2, Getting the Coding Right. That webcast is tomorrow, Wednesday, March 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now to attend Learning Made Easy for Risk Adjustment and HCCs, Part 2, Getting the Coding Right. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Lori also has a Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. And good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. March is National Nutrition Month, so I thought it might be an interesting exercise to review the weight diagnoses. The official coding and reporting guidelines, I... B.14 say that other clinicians may document the body mass index or BMI, but the the provider must document the weight diagnosis. The body mass index codes are found in category Z68. There are four levels of obesity, overweight, which is assigned E66.3, which has a BMI of 25.0 to 29.9, Low risk or class 1 obesity assigned to the category of E66, it's BMI 30.0 to 34.9. Moderate risk or class 2 is in category 66 and it's BMI 35.0 to 39.9. And high risk, class 3 morbid obesity, E66.01, which has a BMI greater than 40. There are not specific codes for class one and class two of obesity. Malnutrition levels are covered in the range of E40 to E46. Quashiorcor is severe malnutrition with nutritional edema and dispigmentation of skin and hair. This condition rarely occurs in the U.S. and has been a focus of the Office of the Inspector General. It is assigned E40. E41 is nutritional marasmus, is a type of severe malnutrition that occurs in young children and infants most frequently. The symptoms are dehydration, chronic diarrhea, and stomach shrinkage. E42 is marasmic quashiorcor, which is an intermediate form of severe malnutrition and has signs of quashiorcor and marasmus. E43 is unspecified severe malnutrition 
the payers are frequently looking for documentation of muscle wasting or cachexia when this diagnosis is assigned. The severe malnutrition codes are MCCs, which is why they draw attention by the payers and government agencies. The diagnosis codes of E44.0, moderate malnutrition, um, E44.1, mild malnutrition, and E46, malnutrition unspecified, complete the section of malnutrition. There are also codes for underweight, R63.6, and failure to thrive, which includes newborn, P92.6, a child over 28 days old, R62.51, and adult, R62.7. It is important that your facility guidelines address documentation of body mass index on which documentation is used for code assignment and when is it captured during the admission, at the beginning of the admission or at discharge. Many of the EHRs calculate body mass index automatically, but this code cannot be assigned without a weight diagnosis. Now let's look at today's survey. As we look at payer denials in anticipation of Erica's report later in the show, which diagnosis is the topic of your most frequent denial? Is it sepsis, B, encephalopathy, and including metabolic and toxic, C, acute respiratory failure, D, acute congestive heart failure, and E, other? And we'll be back later to review the results. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was an excellent review of the nutrition diagnoses. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Lori Johnson. As Lori said, we're going to have the results of the Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey later in this broadcast. Today we continue with the second installment in our exclusive three-part series here on Talk 10 Tuesday on outpatient CDI. Here now with part two is Colleen Deegan. Good morning, Colleen, and welcome back to Talk 10 Tuesday with your second part. Thanks, Chuck, and good morning to everyone listening in today. This is, as Chuck mentioned, part two of my three-part series on hospital outpatient quality reporting program, also known as the hospital OQR program. As I shared last week, the hospital OQR program is a pay-for-reporting quality data program for hospital outpatient services and requires hospitals to meet quality reporting requirements or get a 2% point reduction in their annual payment updates under CMS's outpatient prospective payment system. The purpose of the hospital OQR program is to promote higher quality and more efficient healthcare for Medicare beneficiaries receiving services in outpatient settings. Measures of quality may be of various types, including those of process, structure, outcome, and efficiency. In addition to providing hospitals with a financial incentive to report their quality of care measure data, the hospital OQR program provides CMS with data to help Medicare beneficiaries make a more informed decision about their health care. Let's take a look at the details to one of the process measures, the measure for emergency department throughput. This quality measure, outpatient measure 18, measures the median or average time in minutes from arrival time to departure for discharged ED patients. Why measure this? Because ED throughput is an indicator of quality of care. 
Data demonstrates that shorter length of stays in the emergency department lead to improved clinical outcomes. Significant ED overcrowding has numerous downstream effects, including prolonged waiting times for patients, increased suffering for those who wait, and potentially poor patient outcomes. Waiting times at different hospitals can vary widely depending on the number of patients they see, the staffing levels, efficiency, admitting procedures, and the availability of inpatient beds. Quality improvement efforts focused on reducing ED length of stay have been associated with the decreased number of patients who leave without being seen, which is another ED throughput measure, measure 22, reduction in costs, and an increase in patient satisfaction. Data abstracted for this measure includes patient demographics, provider's name, arrival date and time, discharge status, the ENM code, the ED departure date and time, and the primary ICD-10 diagnosis code. The population for this measure is identified using one element, the ENM code, from the range 99281 to 99285, which are the ENM levels specifically for services in the ED and 99291, which is the first hour of critical care. This data is abstracted quarterly from the hospital data and patient's medical record. Hospital quality of care information and the reporting data elements gathered through the hospital OQR program is available on the CMS.gov hospital compare website. Hospitals, patients, Anyone can access this website and see information gathered on all 15 measures, including ED throughput. The data for this measure will show how your facility's average or median time spent in the ED before being discharged. And will also show comparison of that average time to the national average and to the state average. Of course, a lower number of minutes is, is better. Outpatient quality measures like the hospital OQR program can be an area of focus for an outpatient CDI program. If your work involves outpatient CDI or you're considering starting an outpatient CDI program, I encourage you to find your purpose and learn more about the CMS hospital OQR program. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Colleen. That was my longtime friend, Colleen Deegan. Colleen is a consultant for 3M and an expert in outpatient CDI. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Health Statistics have announced a proposal for a biannual ICD-10-CM and PCS update. Now, the impact on business processes would be far-reaching, much of it good, and some of it possibly not so good. That, according to Susan Gatehouse, who joins us now with the details. Susan, what's going on here? Oh, good morning, Chuck, and good morning to all. There's a lot of good coding information shared today, so we definitely thought it would be prudent to ensure that listeners are aware of the proposed changes or proposed changes in terms of um, ICD-10 and going from one date to two. So to answer your question, Chuck, during the recent Coordination Maintenance Committee meeting held on March 8th and 9th, a proposal was announced for creating two implementation dates. As we know, the current implementation date for CM and PCS codes is October 1. April 1 was discussed as the second date for ICD-10-CM diagnosis and ICD-10-PCS procedure code updates. 
As presented, the April 1 code update would be in addition to, and this is an important thing to note because many people have, it's, it's easy to forget that there is a date, uh, April 1, where under the Social Security Act, diagnosis or procedure code revisions that are required to describe new technology and or medical services for the purpose of new technology add-on payment processes are already in place as of October 1 for those to be evaluated. So if this occurs, the process will require that requesters indicate that they are submitting their code request for consideration either April 1 implementation date if adopted or October 1 implementation date. The committee would make the determination of which request would be presented for consideration for October 1 or April 1 implementation date. So long way of saying there's consideration for two implementation dates, October 1 and April 1. So it's certainly no surprise the proposal of biannual ICD-10 implementation dates brought about numerous comments during the meeting with discussions around the various pros and cons of such an adjustment. First, there were several updates already during the month of October, which we just spoke of, or I just spoke of. Add to the new technology features and all the happenings behind the scenes in terms of potential um, code implementation. Remembering that CPT works on a different time frame as of January 1 is their implementation date or CPT implementation date. Many organizations manage these changes for months following January 1 with delays ranging from system constraints to operational challenges. On the other hand, this could be a good move. We can be using the same, we have been using the same system since I can remember, and definitely since uh, the inception of ICD-10, improving efficiencies and enhancing processes is always a positive, even with the expected challenges. If we've if we learned anything over the past year and a half, and I can't believe it's been that long, COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated that we are capable of making swift changes and process improvements in a limited amount of time. COVID brought about accelerated shifts in healthcare in all business sectors. Healthcare in particular navigated new code requirements, not just one, but several times. So the good news is there is still time to evaluate and CMS is open for public comment. So the takeaway from this segment is there is time to respond. CMS coordination and maintenance committee meeting want to hear from you in terms of what what kind of um, burden it may be or how it could help your organization. So the committee meeting has provided a public forum to discuss proposed changes to ICD-10. No final decisions are made at the meeting. CMS has opened this topic up for comment on the possible adoption of this April 1 implementation date and requested details such as how the changes may impact your current business processes. We are also seeking input, we being CMS, our Coordination and Maintenance Committee. Um, really, they want input as far as factors the committee should consider when determining which request should be um, considered for either April 1 or October 1 implementation date. The committee clarified that the earliest date in an October 1 code update option would be considered April 1, 2022. So comments must be submitted by May 7th of 2021. 
to the CMS um, mailbox, and there's a there is an article on Talk Ten Tuesday which gives you the specific information as far as the email address to mail your comments to. And I would certainly encourage all to, if you think it's a, a positive change, note that. If you see the challenges could be a bit overwhelming, note that as well. There, there was a lot of discussion. So, with that being said, Erica, I will pass it to you. Thank you, Susan. That was the founder of Axia Solutions, Susan Gatehouse. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Susan. And you can read Susan's reporting on this very important topic in today's ICD-10 Monitor. And coming up next, the results of today's Talk to Tuesday listener survey. You're listening to Talk to Tuesday. It's a broadcast service of ICD-10 Monitor. Stand by. Consider the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your organization involved with coding, reimbursement, and compliance. From outpatient and inpatient coders to billing staff, CDI specialists, auditors, and compliance officers. Now envision one place satisfying all these needs through webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. The resources in this centralized hub would be accessible from any location at any time with any device for one affordable price. There is such a place. Introducing the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Get unlimited access to every MedLearn Media Resource in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. View content whenever and wherever on the device of your choosing. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Subscribe today. Here now with the Talk to Tuesday listener survey is, once again, Laurie Johnson. What we're seeing in the survey results are sepsis is 50%, encephalopathy is 8%, respiratory failure is 23%, acute congestive heart failure is 2%, and other is 17%. I'm not surprised about sepsis because I know the struggle is um, everyone uses a different definition of sepsis. And Chuck, with that, I'll turn it back to you. Now it's the time for our popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. In February, the Office of Inspector General, or OIG, released a report called Trend Toward More Expensive Inpatient Hospital Stays in Medicare Emerged Before COVID-19 and Warrants Further Scrutiny. That's a mouthful. The audit analyzed Medicare Part A claims for inpatient hospital stays from 2014 through 2019. Their findings were that a shift from lower to higher severity tiers in MSDRGs was occurring, and their conclusion was that upcoding was happening. They found that nearly a third of the admissions in the highest tier, that is, with MCC, had shorter lengths of stay than expected with the average reduction going from 6.9 days to 6.4 days. They also noted that over half of the highest tier hospitalizations only had a single MCC. They gave an example of a principal diagnosis of pneumonia with 24 secondary diagnoses, 23 of which were either CCs or non-CCs. They pointed out that if the single MCC diagnosis had not been billed appropriately, the hospital would have received approximately $2,800 less. 
please read my entire analysis on ICD-10 Monitor today, but let me point out a few of the flaws which perturbed me. The time frame in which they did the review was from 2014 to 2019. Do any of you remember what happened in 2015? We switched to ICD-10-CM, and it seems to me that this additional granularity could be confounding their data. When I consult, I compare a hospital's DRG distribution to the most recent MedPAR data um, that's available to me, but I always keep in mind the possibility that, A, the hospital I am working with may not be comparable to the average of the sum of the hospitals, like a quaternary care institution cannot be compared to a small community hospital, and, B, what if the rest of them are all doing it wrong? In this case, having a shift from lower severity to higher severity may mean that hospitals are correcting and now getting the risk adjustment right when they were under-diagnosing and undercoding before. The OIG report makes a big deal about the fact that as the number of cases with increased severity rose, the number of cases of medium and low severity decreased. Isn't this obvious? If you have 100 cases of pneumonia, any given case can only fall into one of the tiers. If more cases have MCCs, fewer cases will have only CCs or no CC or MCC. Perhaps observation status is siphoning off more no CC MCC cases. Perhaps CDI has ramped up and is getting providers to recognize and document more legitimate MCCs. Length of stay was noted to fall. As technology and processes improve, this could be genuine. Many facilities are implementing high-reliability medicine programs, trying to standardize best-practice health care. Perhaps attention to social determinants of health facilitated expeditious discharge. This does not mean the patient did not have complex, serious conditions. Patients sometimes only have one condition, which is an MCZ. That doesn't mean it isn't valid. The OIG review is entirely claims-based. If they want to determine if diagnoses were appropriate, they need to review records. In fact, their recommendation was that CMS should conduct targeted reviews of MSDRGs and stays that are vulnerable to upcoding, as well as the hospitals that frequently bill them. CMS graciously declined. Their assessment was that the RACs are already doing this function, and CMS will continue to monitor for potential upcoding and educate providers. My impression is that this OIG report should be a wake-up call for us. We should look at our own practices and ensure that we are not encouraging over-aggressive CC and MCC capture. DRG's conditions, which are particularly prone and could have targeted reviews, are COPD, simple pneumonias, heart failure, renal failure, UTIs, and sepsis. We should analyze our PEPR and act accordingly. If providers practice excellent medicine, document the encounter well, and it is translated into codes accurately, the metrics and reimbursement and length of stay should fall where they belong. The OIG has warned us. Take heed. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. Be sure to read Erica's outstanding article on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. And, Erica, uh, we don't have time to answer a lot of questions, but if you would, take a look at what Brenda said this morning about your friend, Colleen Deegan. 
Uh, well, Brenda had no question, but she wanted to say thank you to Colleen in regarding uh, the outpatient CDI. She said it gave her more insight of her direction of reviewing ER progress notes, and she wished us all a wonderful day. Thank you, Brenda, for that uh, very nice comment. We appreciate it very much. And that is going to be a wrap for our 454th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Colleen Deegan, Susan Gatehouse, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell. And as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. We look forward to seeing you next Tuesday right back here for part three of our three-part series on outpatient CDI. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.